Now, you know, story is becoming much more important in, say, first-person shooters or action-adventure games um, than it certainly used to be. Uh, and, and they are, are starting to use professional writers as, as standard. But generally, you know, games are get, gameplay-led. That, you know, that, that, that's kind of why they're games. That was Rihanna Pratchett from an interview coming up later in our programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Tom Crowley. As a Korean nerd obsessed with writing and video games from a very young age, I've long been interested in interactive stories. From Grim Fandango on the PC when I was 10, the best Christmas present ever, to Death of the King, an immersive murder mystery by theatre company Immersity just last month. In fact, we'll be talking to one of the founders of Immersity in just a few minutes. As Punch Drunk Theatre's immersive world building and secret cinema's luxury film screenings become more and more popular, we're learning that contemporary audiences want to be involved in the stories they're going to see. The tickets often carry a hefty price tag due to the scale of the operation, and with the budgets and profits of video games skyrocketing over the last 10 years, interactive stories have become one of the art world's most lucrative industries, and well worth discussing. This month on our programme we're looking at various forms of interactive storytelling, and the opportunity and technical challenge they present. I'm here with Jenny Redmond. Hello. And Eleanor Rushton. Hello. Well, I was really excited for the interaction episode because I've been working and interest working with and interested in interactive theatre particularly for a while so I was really interested to see how ideas around interaction would translate to audio drama but also to talk to people who make interactive stories across different forms so you know games and um, film and that that kind of stuff yeah there's this growing trend isn't there for immersion uh, and immersive experiences and I like the sense of, I think it comes from a sense of nostalgia um, of wanting something or sort of, well, wanting something very personalised for you, which used to happen a lot when you were a kid, because it was much easier to tailor stories to people when they were tiny. So Eleanor, before we started recording this, you mentioned pantomime and things like that. Mm. But then also, I remember having a one of those books where you fill in the names. Mm. And it's it, obviously it's not immersion, but it's something, it's a story that I was reading about me and my pet rabbit. <laughs> and, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, for some reason. Minor characters. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and how that's been blown up into creating these huge, incredibly expensive experiences. Like, look at the, the size of Secret Cinema and the scope of Secret Cinema. Um, and all the people going there want something, want to experience something on a personal level tied into a big franchise or a big film that they know. See, I, this is largely logical, but I'm a, a massive grump about that kind of thing in general. If I, if anything, I'm a tediously sort of narrative uh, purist. So, like, I was just thinking, like, I'm the kind of guy who, when 3D cinema came around, I watched it, it was like, man, ruins the two-dimensional composition <laughs> of the film medium. But that made me think that if I was born in 1936, when colour film came in, I'd go, why would you have colour film? It spoils everything. But I think that's just my natural uh, impetus. But I see so many... Pieces of interactive uh, and immersive work, uh, mainly uh, through the beneficence of uh, Rosanna Allenson from Immersity, uh, particularly from her shorts nights that she runs, that completely ca- captivate me and make me interested in the medium. So I'm largely just being okay. an old fart, basically, yeah. yeah. But um, but yeah, there's so many things. Do, but then also, perversely, I'm a huge fan of, of video game stories. Mm. And so uh, there's absolutely no defence for my position. I think the thing about interaction, well, it works on exactly that, which is that I think everyone 
has a different... You get out what you put in. Yes, I think that's massively what I mean. And that for some people um, who maybe are much more willing to kind of, you know, go in and like be the star of their own drama class and that kind of thing, they, they'll probably love, you know, <laughs> certain levels of very like high interactive... I hate interactive, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doing interactive drama. But like also, I think that I think personally, I think the challenge with making a story interactive surely has to be trying to reach out a hand to people who aren't necessarily, um, you know, raring to go and play drama games and sort of be like, whether it's through video games or something else, be like, you can be part of this story. Maybe let's try how. There was another side of this that I was really interested in as well. And it, it was looking at it from not how an audience interacts with a piece, but how a performer interacts with something which is interactive how you approach that, how you change your attitude to the the content, to the material, what you're dealing with, because you know you're going to have to put certain elements of trust or certain amounts of flexibility in how other people are experiencing what you're putting out there. Like, how much do you structure your own performance when it can't be structured? Immersity, founded in 2013, is a London-based interactive theatre company. They produce a regular immersive short plays night, The Alchemical Door, and have also produced some hugely ambitious full-scale interactive plays, most recently a site-specific production of Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. I spoke to Clancy Flynn, the technical designer of the company and one of its core members alongside Rosanna Mallinson, about one of their most technically ambitious productions so far, written by Clancy herself. Blood Will Have Blood. I'm Clancy Flynn, and I'm the technical director of Immersity and part-time resident writer. Blood Will Have Blood is an interactive play that um, you essentially listen to, but it's also performed by one live actor, and you don't know this at the time, but you are Fleance from Macbeth, so it's a spin-off of Macbeth, I guess you could say, and it's made so that your choices affect the outcome of the story. So there's an audience of about 12 to 16 people, depending on the venue, and um, everyone listens to headphones to their own individual audio feed while being interacted with by an actor and also interacting with other members of the group. So at the very beginning, it's, you're told that you wake up in a forest and you meet the witch who will kind of walk you through your experience as flans. You'll be given a task that you'll do with other audience members and then how you behave during that task will affect the next event in the play. Macbeth explores themes of fate and inevitability, and in Blood Will Have Blood, I wanted to explore what it's like to live in a world where you think you don't have choice, but then to find out that really what you do affects the outcome. And I think Macbeth really struggles with this idea of destiny, and I wanted an audience to be surprised by the fact that their destiny did respond to their actions in the room and the time. In a lot of ways, when you're writing, you're creating a character arc. And hopefully, I think if you're, I'm, I write very character-driven fiction in theater. So I'm always thinking, how does my character feel about this? And then that informs the next event and the next thing. So for this, instead of having this, um, absolute ideal of the character, I tried to think about all the different ways that someone could respond to the same situation and then follow those arcs through to their ultimate conclusion. 
I'm a big gamer, and one of the things I was really into before writing Blood Will Have Blood was a Dragon Age Inquisition, which, um, if you haven't played it, is a very character-driven game in which you have to build relationships, and that can be friendships, that can be uh, fighting partnerships, or that can be romances with the other characters. So the idea that the world responds to the kind of person that you are was very fresh in my mind after playing that. One of the biggest challenges we faced was this group audience because, to be honest, if I had my druthers, I would love to do everything for an individual audience member. But that's not really possible uh, in a theatrical model, so we had this group. And a lot of times, the group would really clump together and they'd want to do their own thing. <laughs> um, and they would be afraid of standing out. So it was a little crushing to me when I wrote like 130 different endings or something horrible like that, and everyone got the same one. I'd be like, no, why did you all do the same thing? <laughs> Think for yourselves. We learned about creating opportunities and um, making people feel singled out so that they had to think independently and maybe they couldn't see uh, certain choices. So for example, the very ending, um, we ended up changing maybe five or six times to change both the pacing but also how people discovered what other people did. And we eventually ended up hiding those choices so that everyone had to really think for themselves when they were given their final choice that really affected their ending. I really hope that no matter how you behave in the story, no matter what outcome you get, you do feel empowered and that it's almost a story about empathy and I think a lot of interaction should be about discovering how empathy um, changes your experience because I want you to feel important in the world and that a lot of times I think you go to immersive theater and it happens to you, it happens around you and I wanted you to be part of the story and I wanted you to feel that your actions, no matter what they were, <laughs> affected the story so that you're never powerless and I think that I want you to leave feeling like actually in the world you aren't powerless and when you get out into the real world that feels like something that you don't affect, you would know that actually even the things that I don't see the repercussions of are happening and I'm part of that and everything I do, everything I say, has meaning, even if I don't know what it is. We're now very proud to present the opening sequence of the original audio track from Blood Will Have Blood. Remember what Clancy said, you're about to wake up in a grimy, brutal Scotland, ruled by the tyrant Macbeth after his ascension to the throne. You are young Fleance, lost in this world after the murder of your father, Banquo. Luckily, one of the weird sisters is there to take you under her wing. You come to yourself. There's sun angling through the leaves, chasing a cold grey dawn. You're in the forest and the fear comes slowly. There's raw earth. You can smell mould, wood rot, and your hands there's dirt under your nails. You've been digging. And... Well... You must have had your reasons. You remember. 
The name of the nightjar singing lich songs in the mists. The names for the trees. Scotchfar. Rowan. Aspen. There's a patch of turned earth at your feet though and you've no name for that. Or the quiet dark at the edge of your mind. There's a bag with you. Small. Not for travelling. You don't understand what you... Nothing much. A tooth strung on a thong, a blessed medallion, a silver pin, anonymous trinkets. Something's missing. Who's there? She appears out the forest. Aged eyes and an ageless face. What are you called? You think tell her. But then you know what it is you've lost. What you don't remember. Your name. Where you've come from. Where you're going. What is your name? She reads the flights of birds or hears the future in their call. She smiles. You're not the only thing in this world that will know where you have been where you will go. She will know. She will tell you. But I am not your mother, lost boy. You will earn your keep with me. If you seek your name and your fate, know that I am seeking something else and will demand it from you. It is a bargain. You have nowhere else to go. So you stay with the witch. Be of some use. Collect us some firewood for the night. It's cold here. You won't be used to it. Go on! I'll call for you when you're done. The woman. The witch. She never tells you her name, just puts you to work with the others. Her other children have their own names and their own purpose. A different bargain. They don't tell you more. They're not easy to win over. And your own bargain is hard. Cold enough that your fingers are sore and numb. You wonder how many sticks you'll have to carry. You wonder what she'll make you for dinner. And how hard will you need to work to find out what's happened to you? She saw it in the flight of the birds. You're sure. You think of a snow-peaked mountain over a flat silver lake. she's watching, and you are alone. 
You've collected enough. Add it to the pile. Now get to work. These sheets need washing. There was always enough work to go around. The stained sheets. Stubborn. Hard to get white again. What's on them? What does it look like, idiot child? Yes, blood. Blood-stained sheets. Day in, day out. And not sheets, shrouds. You could smell the char on them from the burning pits. We're at war. This is what war looks like. And that's how you learned about the world outside. By the shrouds brought home by the witch, used and reused. The body count and casualties. There was a war, the witch said. Scotland now was always at war. Blood will have blood. And since the king had taken the throne, the country was awash in it. The king had been a great warrior. Macbeth, a thane thrice over, and a hero in a truer day. He was meant for great things. It was always his fate. And he did do great things with his sword. And then the swords of others. Yes. Now slaughter is a great deed, valued above all others. Here. Scotland. Poor country. Clans bowed to him, and Macbeth did what he wished. Killed who he wished. Life has no value to him. Goodness, no value. Freedom, no value. He is fated and doomed all else with himself. Yes, all of Scotland is oppressed. And you are, maybe, most of all. The witch says she struck a bargain with you, that she's only taken her due. But she exaggerates her benevolence. The washing strips the skin off your hands, and she'll strip any of us down with her tongue. You, as often as not. As if you're nothing. As if you're... no one. Enough. Ring those out. Get them hung up. More chores. It's always more chores. But she barely spares you a glance. Unless it's to reprimand you. But you thought there was an understanding. You cannot remember your name, not where you came from. Nothing from before she found you in the forest. You followed her because you thought she would have answers. But no. She tells you nothing. She offers you nothing. You think of leaving, but you have no home to go to, no trail to follow back, no clues to your past. The witch took everything you had, your only connection to that past life. You think of the pouch. What had been inside? Nothing important, maybe, but, well, you hadn't looked too closely. The last pieces of a lost life in her possession. You want to take them back. But she's back sooner than you expected. She treats you like a child, but you're not so young. Not so young anymore that she should ignore you. 
Maybe that's been your error all along. You decide to get her attention. You screw yourself up to pull down her shrouds, undo your work at the clothesline. You grip it with both hands, gently ready to tug. Then you count down in your own head. One. Two. Three. And you pull. The witch looks at you, stunned for a moment. And you expect that she'll be angry. You expect a sharp word or a sharp slap. But she smiles. You remind her what she promised you. She said she knew where you were going, knew where you were from. You have so many questions. How did you arrive adrift in that forest, your hands covered in dirt? Where is your history? What is your name? You ask for the past you've forgotten. But she tells you your future. That extract from Blood Will Have Blood was written by Clancy Flynn. Fleance was played by Dan Buckley and The Witch was Jamie Burkett. The composer and sound designer was Nicola Chang, and it was directed by Rosanna Mallinson. Many thanks to Immersity for letting us use the extract in our programme. You can find more information on their upcoming productions at immer-city.com. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but what I wanted to talk about as well was was responsibility in, in interactive storytelling. Um, and from that, I don't just mean responsibility to, to make sure that the story is told well, but I think with a lot of interaction mediums things like vr and immersive experiences and things like that you've got a responsibility to make sure everybody's okay i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> um a lot of them could go quite far i think especially with with vr things could get quite dark yeah quite yeah soon yeah. you can get um a vr version of resident evil 7 which i have no intention of ever playing <laughs> it looks terrifying and at what point is does does the author, writer, director, storyteller have a responsibility to say, actually, I'm going to put some parameters in here because for safety, for mental health, mm. for at what point do we limit how much we should experience? It's an interesting question. I mean, that was sort of one of the questions in the play The Nether, uh, which was addressing that kind of sense of what if virtual reality uh, is purely fiction, is purely a, a virtual reality experience, then where, where are the moral obligations within it? And it's a difficult question. I think at this point, we're, we're still at a point where all VR stuff is, is limited enough by the ways in which we can control it, that it's very clear where the breakdown of, you know, uh, player and game world are. But uh, the rate at which technology increases, it feels like we're not too far away from, who knows, you have a sort of incredibly sophisticated controller that almost becomes second nature. So maybe you do start to question whether or not you're actually... And also it depends how susceptible you are to that kind of suggestion as well. And obviously this this could be because we've watched too much sci-fi um, <laughs> of, of knowing where that line is and where that sort of dips into people allowing themselves or, or choosing to experience quite dark things. But for now, I think the possibilities of, of interaction are really exciting and VR looks incredible. And as the technology grows, we've got a lot more interaction to come in, in all manner of things. It was just that's sort of like 10% on, on one corner where it's going to get a little bit shady. It's that interesting thing, of the sort of thing that's often used to criticise games is, I'm talking video games now, is, is 
oh, you know, you get to go and like shoot a prostitute with no consequences. How, what's this going to mm. do? Mm. And I think what it seems to me the most sensible way of approaching that is, well, obviously we explore with things in fantasy worlds and fictional world, worlds that we wouldn't do in real life, but it's still not, it's still, there's still a moral compass within a game. Mm. And I think when it comes to interactive, say, theatre, where there are physical bodies involved in in um in both scenarios where there are physical bodies involved and clashing within a fictional world still but where you know bruises and that kind of thing do actually come um it's the same thing i think some people will always use being in a fictional world as either an excuse or um will allow themselves to kind of get carried away and do things that hopefully they wouldn't do in real life. I mean, in most cases, they certainly wouldn't do in real life. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't do in real life. But I'm, I'm talking in a, in a theatre <laughs> yeah, thing yeah. now. People are still kind of bound there-ish by some, True, yes. some sense of decorum, but not always. And I think um, it's a really key thing for anyone doing an interactive piece of theatre to remember, which is that not only do you have to kind of look after your actors and your audience, but bear in mind that the audience are trying to navigate that fine line of joining in and doing a good job but also having to remember that it's still not okay to, yeah. you know, do some things. And there'll be more on virtual reality later on in this programme. Technological advances play a very important role in how we how still possible. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Tap your left earpiece. Not reading. Tap again. There appears to be some interference, but time is short. We'll have to continue. Epsilon, this is Omega. You've been reactivated. Delta is compromised. I thought it necessary to finally make direct contact with you. The previous recording contained an embedded subliminal recording calibrated to your brain frequencies. The Lamb of Eriali is on the move. I'm only able to cut through for a minute or so at a time, so I must speak quickly. The cult has grown bold. It will emerge on the day of petrification. Their means of recruitment are insidious. Most people have already been compromised. Look around you. Scan for any recording devices. Be subtle. Good. This is your mission, Epsilon. We need to know when the day of petrification is planned to take place. Once we know that, we can take action to stop it. The Gorgon head of the Lamb of Eriali, contacts their devotees using clues embedded into their surroundings. We need to decode these messages. I will help you, but I must change frequency. Wait for my next message. Stay alert. And remember, you're being watched. Couple questions we'll need to face. The ready availability of internet access and interactive media in our pockets has led to many innovations in storytelling and entertainment, but not many as innovative as Zombies Run, a running app which combines original podcast drama with, well, a running app. Eleanor Rushton, one of our producers and a cast member of Zombies Run, sat down with Matt Wateska to discuss player choices in interactive fiction and the new Zombies Run tabletop game. Hi, my name is Matt Witeska and I work at a company called Six to Start where I am the lead designer and writer of Zombies Run, the board game. So this is our interaction episode of Story Etc. And I wanted to talk to you about the process of making 
Zombies Run, um, which we can talk a little bit about in a second, but into a board game and what the connotations are and requirements are for that transition from one form to another. Well, so Zombies Run, which is uh, our sort of flagship product here at Second Start, is a uh, running game. So you put it on your smartphone uh, and you put your headphones in and you go out running in the real world. And while you're running, we periodically play clips of audio narrative to you, which immerse you in a zombie apocalypse adventure story where you are the main character. Uh, so this is a very uh, successful and really fun app that we made that uh, makes running a lot less boring because it gives you a story to follow along while you're running. Crucially with Zombies Run, one of the key sort of design features is that it's entirely audio and there's no input from the player other than running. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I was given the job of adapting Zombies Run into a tabletop game, a board game. And after we went around the houses quite a lot on what that might entail, uh, we arrived at this interesting hybrid of a real-time cooperative card game. So that means that you and your friends are all working together to match cards into sequences in order to escape zombies. Uh, In real time, there are no turns. That's very fast-paced. And while you're playing this card game, kind of with your heart in your mouth, uh, rushing to escape the zombies before they kill you, we periodically give you moments of interactive audio story. So the audio story that you hear gives you options for how to respond. So uh, that's really one of the key differences between the running app and the board game is that in the board game, you can decide how you're going to respond to the situations we present you with. And that's really exciting for the players because it gives them this extra layer of immersion and i think that's one of the things that makes interactivity and narrative very exciting and very compelling um so in in a traditional narrative a linear narrative you uh consume a story uh, that was created by the uh author filmmaker whoever and your response to the story while unique to you because you have your own set of associations with particular imagery or uh, whatever The broad framework of the story is always going to be the same for every member of the audience. Um, What's exciting about an interactive narrative where you make choices and the story that you encounter changes depending on the choices you make is that it can allow in some circumstances for a much closer connection to the story and to the characters. So um, one example to draw on our own work, uh, in the very beginning of Zombies Run the Board Game, the first choice you're given Uh, You're in the airport on this island that you've arrived on, and as you're waiting to clear customs, the security guard at the desk gets a warning on her radio, and she's told to lock the whole airport down. Um, She asks you to step away from the desk, and this is the first choice that we give to the players in the game, and all we ask them is, how do you want to respond? So uh, not even an action, we're just saying, she's asked you to step back, how do you respond? And the three choices that we give them are, you can ask what's going on, you can step back from the desk or you can just run away completely. It's really exciting seeing different groups of people playing the game trying to make that decision. In reality, nothing about the story actually changes based on that decision at all. But the players respond to that as if this moment of deep expression. It's like, who are we and how are we going to respond? Are we going to run away? People feel like that's quite a cowardly thing to do, but maybe quite prudent. Are we going to ask what's going on and get more information and... um, You can see players who end up being a bit more cerebral about the whole game often try and get as much information early on as possible, or are they going to kind of hedge their bets and do something in between? So even though that one choice doesn't really have any long-term effect, it just 
changes what you next hear. The players really kind of connect to the situation there because they get to respond the way that they feel like they would ordinarily. So um, if I were to do a very broad stroke uh, comparison, linear fiction is maybe a better machine of one-to-one empathy. It lets you really connect to a particular character and broaden your understanding of the world in that way. But interactive fiction is maybe, uh, in some cases, a better tool for immersion and putting you into a situation you're not familiar with. In an interactive story like the the Telltale game, The Walking Dead, so Telltale are a company that make interactive fiction, and their um, their, their first very major success was a, a game based on the comic book series The Walking Dead, and that asks you to make a lot of very difficult moral decisions about who lives and who dies. There's a situation in in one of the episodes of the Walking Dead game where all you're being asked to do is distribute two or three bars of chocolate between the people in your group. There are six people in the group with you, all of whom are in various states of uh, distress, um, waiting for the next zombie attack. And you have these three pieces of chocolate. And all it asks you to do is choose who gets a bit of chocolate. And because I was making that decision, even though I've never been in that exact situation, I was remembering situations where I've had to decide things like that and that particular moment hit hit me very strongly because I was making that decision actively to some extent I don't want to overgeneralize like fiction is sort of practice for life we test our own boundaries and, and we give ourselves a taste of experiences we hope we might never have to go through a lot of what you might call the most freeform interactive games what open world games so worlds in which you take on a particular character and you explore an entire massive world with a lot of freedom about what you choose to do and how you choose to do it. Um, a lot of the time it can be quite cathartic to play those games as a very evil character or not even necessarily sort of comic book black and white evil, but just someone who is quite happy to wander into someone's house and rifle through all their drawers and take all their money. Um, and that's obviously something that most of us wouldn't do in real life, certainly not with that kind of careless abandon. But um, in a way exploring the edges of your boundaries like that can reaffirm your own identity a little bit. Um, the most exciting thing for me is uh, sort of communicating a, a, a pure moment of, of emotional thought or whatever. And um, writing something interactive gives a really nice opportunity for that because um, if you're doing your job right, at least, you're putting the players in a difficult situation. And that's really fun. So, um you know, the, the players, I'm pulling, this isn't a spoiler for the game, I'm just making this up. Um, <laughs> the, the players are being pursued by a, a lot of zombies across the top of a mountain. And the zombies are closer and closer inside the card game, and that's panicking the players. And then you pop up a notification that says, um, there's a small child calling for help from under a rock. Do you slow down and help? Or, or do you and um, or do you, do you keep moving? Um, and in that moment, um, even though it's, just you and your friends sat on a table and it's very, very small stakes and, and it's just a fictional person calling out. You put the players in a very difficult position and they, they have this moment of panic and you almost trick them into making their truest decision. <laughs> like Not the one they would like to say that they're going to make, but they really uh, show their, their sort of real colours. <laughs> I don't think... Will come off well in this game at all. <laughs> this is the other good thing about making it rather than playing is you don't have to uh, step out from the shadows and show your true colours. But yeah, uh, so that's really exciting. Is um, when you're writing the scene and you're writing the scenario, you um, you feel the 
tension and the emotions of the of the place that you're hoping to put the players in. And then when you see that playing out uh, while people are playing the game, that's incredibly rewarding. It feels like touching a, a wire full of electricity or something. That's really that's really uh, great. But on the other side, there's this really um, personal joy in um, constructing something that's kind of elegant in a way. So it's almost like a really good cryptic crossword clue. Yes. Um, when you read a really good cryptic crossword clue, every part of it fits into the rest of it, and you can see the sense, and it you can see the the kind of the perfect interlocking construction. There's something incredibly satisfying about that, and when you're making something interactive where there are a lot of moving parts um, and a lot of potential for things to come back later that may have seemed like dead ends at the beginning or um, interlocking mechanisms to change what happens. Um, there can be a great kind of intellectual satisfaction in, in solving that problem um, and, and building something that, even if it's only you that really sees the full span of it, building something that fits together nicely and is quite elegant, yeah. Yeah. So there's this kind of a hippie uh, emotional answer in there. Uh, um, cold, Cerebral, cold, intellectual <laughs> yeah. Uh, joy. Yeah, it's good. Both parts of your brain. Mm. Beautiful harmony. Very early on, uh, I was a kid in the early nineties, and which was the height of the sort of choose your own adventure book. And um, I can't sort of remember a particular book that did this, but a general feeling of thinking as a you know young six, seven, eight year old ha ha ha, I've tricked it by picking one of the options and then having the result text for the thing you chose, recognizing your thought process in choosing it. So I'll use an example from Zombies Run the Board Game. Um, Do it. <laughs> uh, there's a situation where you're trying to escape the airport at the beginning of the game and you, uh, if you make a particular choice, you go through the restricted area of the airport rather than uh, through the concourse. And as you burst through the door, the security guard kind of stops you and holds you at gunpoint. And, you know, what are you doing? And the, you're given options to respond. And um, one of the options we give the players is to say, I'm being chased by zombies, which obviously is the thing that everybody chooses. But everyone chooses it thinking, well, he's not going to believe us. And then the security guard responds by asking the players what type of drugs they've taken. And that, I was what I was, I think what I was trying to do with that particular setup was bring that similar feeling of um, the story being inside your head a little bit and kind of knowing where, like what you're not just the choice that you've made, but the thought process you made to get there. And implanting it into the story as well. So you're sitting around a table making these decisions, but they're going, good, thank you for giving me that. And now I'm going to slot it into the story. Yeah, exactly. So it's it, it, it um, what it does, that's a really good way of putting it. It, it recognises that the storytelling is collaborative and that um, you aren't just a kind of a blank slate on which the story is poured as an audience. Uh, hell of a mixed metaphor for there, but, um, but you, you're a collaborator. If you're a Zombies Run fan and you'd like to look into the new tabletop game, it releases in December. You can find more information at zombiesrungame.com. One thing that I think applies to all of these media, um, but it always seems particularly relevant to video games in, in my head, is uh, how do you tell a story that has a sort of authorship and pacing and a sort of dramatic cadence when the player or the audience member is involved and can make decisions about it. 
And that's something which uh, a, a lot of uh, people in interactive theatre and immersive theatre, uh, but particularly in, in video game writing, uh, always seem to be in a constant battle to manage that and negotiate that um, that dynamic. I remember having, um, I'm not particularly a video games type person, I've played some, and I, there's always been ones where the story has a lot more scope. I have thought, well, they're actually not very good, but I think it's actually, I'm not very good at the game. I'm just... <laughs> In one room, walking into walls, and I'm like, oh, this is crap. "That's not a good story." Yeah, no, that's rubbish. The woman who walked into the wall <laughs> yeah. for three days. Yeah, I couldn't turn around or anything. Ah, oh, that's the right stick normally. You just turn the right <laughs> stick. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the other thing is that, especially now that games have um, almost unlimited functionality, it used to be that you were a guy with a gun. You were standing at the end of a corridor. You had to get to the other end of the corridor. Whether that corridor was made of uh, bricks or uh, bushes that you just couldn't walk through, and there was a real sense of, "But why can't I do this?" And the reason was because either the parameters of the game world wouldn't let you do it because it would break it uh, or because the technology just did, didn't exist or because it would subvert the story too much if you people didn't know how to negotiate those changes of, of plot. But now open world games where you literally, I mean, the only parameters are how much information the game either that they've made or that it can store. Uh, in fact, just as we're recording this um the first trailer for Beyond Good and Evil 2, which is a game I'm very excited about, has just come out. And their promise seems to be you can generate your own character. You're in a galaxy of different planets, all of which have different cities in them that you can fully explore. So we've gone from sort of a Grand Theft Auto, oh, one big city with lots of things in it, to a galaxy full of planets, yeah. uh, to the point where they've all, they've promised like an ecosystem this, they've also made it clear this may not make it into the game, but they showed in real time how a, a, a meteor striking one of the planets would change the terrain of the planet. Mm. That's how in-depth sort of new game technology is. So the question is, how do you then still thread a story through that while allowing freedom? I think I'm a little bit, I think I'm a bit like Jenny and I, I haven't played tons of video games, but I definitely came of age with, a, with quite a lot older brother who was very into games. <laughs> so I played his way of kind of playing with me and babysitting me was play this game. Um, so the ones that really stick with me well, from then are particularly Monkey Island, which oh. has a really brilliant script mm. and it requires a lot of quite silly but lateral thinking. So I think the thing that appeals to me in games is that the, and similarly in interactive theatre actually, is that the tools are there. that You get to pass them. They are there in the world just as they are. It's in, in the real world, it's just, do you have the imagination or the, do you bother to pick them up? Mm. And obviously that gets, that is limited in in games, less limited now from what you're saying. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's really exciting idea. I like the idea that you're sort of, it's just kind of down to you and whether you are someone who will pick up the random thing or look at under the stone and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was your first Monkey Island? I think I started with two, actually. Two? That was still so very pixelated. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Although ones, they've yeah. redone them now, and I find that very disconcerting. I don't like those. I don't like it either. They've also redone Day of the Tentacle, which I think looks great, but I, I did not <laughs> like the Monkey Island redesign. I thought it, it, it didn't get capture the, the beauty of the seven pixels per screen. Yeah. <laughs> the other kind of game I think is really exciting is one where I think it's interesting when games do manage to make you make an emotional connection with a character, even though you're supposed to be sort of implanting yourself into this kind of avatar. And one I think that does that really interestingly is Journey. You played Journey? I haven't, but I've seen a lot about it. Oh my God. It's incredible. And in terms of an interactive experience where there's, I don't want to spoil anything. There is a moment where you think that your choice has been taken away and it is 
so frustrating, so upsetting, so awful. And then it works out fine. Um, but it's... Spoiler. Give it away. No, yeah. no, no. Well, you know, maybe I've just got a dark, dark sense of what's okay. I don't know. Or maybe that was only true of your playthrough. Yeah. Who knows? Good call. As we discussed, while so many new theatre and events companies juggle questions of player agency versus story authorship, the often overlooked video game writer has been tackling these questions for decades. As game technology becomes more powerful and allows for increasingly in-depth game worlds and gameplay mechanics, where does a story fit in? First off, I sat down with Ellie Gibson, a veteran games critic best known for her work at Eurogamer, and Dara O'Brien's Go 8-Bit, to hear about her loves and pet peeves in video game storytelling. Hello, I'm Ellie Gibson. Uh, I'm currently appearing in Dara O'Brien's Go 8-Bit. I'm the host of Go 8-Bit DLC, and I've been a games journalist for ages. The first game I can remember playing is at Jet Set Willy back in the 80s, and I don't really remember that having a story. I just remember the little man. In fact, to this day, I'm I'm not sure what the story is. You're in a house, aren't you, or something? I don't know. Um, So... Yeah, and and then I remember as I got older and into different games, like I remember obviously Mario, there was the classic story, the princess in the tower that you had to go and rescue, um, which I knew from fairy tales and frankly found pretty tedious. I mean, that wasn't why I played Mario, to rescue the bloody princess, really. Um, But the first time I think I really engaged with a character and a sort of setting was Tomb Raider, which is still my favourite series of all time of video games. Um, and I, I remember watching someone play it and thinking, well, this looks tedious. It's just a woman in a cave with some bats. Um, and then playing it myself and understanding that um, actually this is about one woman's adventure and about exploration and about solving puzzles and using your brain. And, and it's her story. And I, the story of Tomb Raider, I mean, the, the cutscenes in Tomb Raider, especially the early games, are pretty dreadful. And it's all nonsense. It's all she's got a scion with a wireframe on it and she's looking for an artifact. And there's all these terrible foreigners with terrible, funny accents. Um, and, and that's all kind of dreadful. And again, I've never really much cared about that. But I'm more interested in the sort of sort of subtext really the sort of quieter story of this woman's journey and and how did she get there and how did she become this person and and things like that well games of course are a unique medium because they're the only one where you you are actually a part of the story and you're telling the story as you consume the medium with with films or with books you're passive obviously whereas with a game you know whether the character dies is up to you and whether the character goes left or right and at the most basic level, things like that. So you are part of the narrative. And that's one of the reasons games interest me and why I think they're worth exploring. Obviously, open world games, um, that is kind of magnified because you really are writing your own story. You can go anywhere you like and do whatever you like for the most part. And yes, you have objectives, but again, in a lot of them, you choose which objectives you want to, to play out. So um, I think that's interesting. Although, strangely, I'm I'm not actually a massive fan of open world games. I quite like almost being told where to go and what to do. And I do like a story. And it's a shame that it's it's so rare still to find a story in a video game that is really engaging in a way that it can be in a film or a book in that it really makes you want to find out what happens next. But, you know, we have seen examples of that now emerging. So hopefully that will become more common. 
I thought The Last of Us is a fantastic example of a game that really has thought about story a lot. And you can just tell playing it from the beginning as well. This isn't a storyline that's been tacked on to fit a game mechanic or a level design. Um, They've started with the story and they've started with the characters and, you know, the dialogue is excellent. And, And most importantly, you know, you do care about these characters and you do want to know what happens to them and it is very much what happens to them it's a, it's actually a very linear game there really is only one path through and the cutscenes, you know there's no I don't think there's even any quick time events or anything it's just it is what it is um, and the ending which I won't spoil uh, is fantastic and I know there's a lot of debate about the ending I personally thought it was brilliant and um, it left me with a feeling that I've only previously experienced really from movies of kind of oh right well you know but but now what and and you know, but how could he and would I have? And and it's quite rare because the, the story in most video games is is rescue the princess or save the world or stop the universe from exploding. Um, and that's all fine. And it's fine for video games to do that. But I'm interested in something more now. I'm interested in them taking that step further and actually make me think harder about what I would have done in that situation. And The Last of Us did that for me. I think the, the big obstacle still is that, uh, you know, as I've said, telling a really good story in a game and making it believable and interesting and fit with this weird mechanic where the person you're telling the story to is part of the story as a player, that's incredibly difficult. And I almost don't blame games companies for kind of going, oh, it's too hard, leave it, just just put another gun in, you know. Um, people like guns. <laughs> they do, that's that's true. And, and again, not everybody wants to play a game um, with a very, you know, multi-layered storyline and that's fine as well so I think I think I don't know that it's necessarily budgetary I think it's more sort of the intellectual challenge is is so great and it can go quite badly wrong quite easily um you can end up you know overdoing it so that the player doesn't feel they have any control or say in what's going on and you know you can do it's very it's a very cheesy story dialogue can be dreadful in video games i don't quite know what it is it is specific to video games it's, you just watch these people say these things and you're like but no person in the history of the world has ever said that nobody talks like that and that's particularly bad for games so there are all these things to overcome and yeah i'm sure it is easy and probably more financially viable just to go well we'll just do another game it's in space it's on a ship. There's a monster on the spaceship. People like that will do that. We'll, we'll sell millions. And they're right. It does wind me up when you get these games with these sort of massive cutscenes, And often they're very good games. I think you know, something like the early Assassin's Creed games or the Mass Effect games maybe. But I remember particularly with Assassin's Creed, you know, I loved those games and you'd have a great time and you'd be exploring the world and you feel that you were in this making your way in this world and making your path through it and it was a real adventure and then you'd have to stop and watch a 12 minute conversation about the renaissance and it was just tedious quite honestly and it really and again that was a few years ago the the graphics have have improved rapidly in the last few years but often like the the lip syncing is so bad it really takes you out of the moment and when you've got bad lip syncing and bad dialogue you can't believe that these characters are real you can't engage with the story and care about what's happening to them. So um, I'm glad that things have improved <laughs> on that front. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of tropes, I, I just think there's been a lot of laziness about this basic idea of, um, especially with, with women, you know, is, is it the woman in the refrigerator thing is so often about rescuing a woman or a man whose motivation for violence is the loss of a woman. Um, and even when people try to subvert that and say, well, hey, we'll make the main character a woman 
often then, you know, there's only two choices. Either they're very weak and vulnerable and emotionally unstable and they eventually need a man's help anyway, or they're this kind of ridiculous sort of Teflon space marine type with no emotions and no kind of, you know, and they're completely untouchable. Um, And those two characters have been done so much that it's not really interesting to me. And I don't really know any women like that. (laughs) So um, it's it's more interesting when you get more um, multifaceted rounder characters. And I say that's true for men as well. You know, of course, there are equally lots of lots of video game characters who are male are dreadful stereotypes. And I don't want I've got two sons. I don't want them to grow up thinking, you know, you've got to be this big, tough space guy and you're only allowed to be angry because your wife got shot. You know, I think there's more to life than that. You know, one of my favourite games from back in the day was was Eco or Ico. I never know. I mean, I wrote the English language manual and I don't know how to say it. So who knows? <laughs> and then we've had, of course, recently, The Last Guardian. Um, and those are those are those very quiet games where there's not this constant banging drum of a narrative. It's, it is about the characters and their relationship. And I think they, those are really good examples of games that succeed in sort of solving that that riddle of how do you make the player feel involved and tell a story because again those stories are predestined and you know what you have to do i mean yeah the, the story of eco is is the classic get the princess out of the castle right i mean that's basic stuff but it's told in a much more intelligent interesting way that makes the player makes you as the player feel like you are part of the story and you're not just watching it kind of unfold and i think with the last guardian again because you're having to learn how to interact with this animal um, and lead it through the story um you're not just being told what to do and, and you feel like you're working it out and you feel like you're sort of chipping away at something that's revealing the story rather than having it sort of constantly just chucked at you in bite-sized chunks, which is what games historically have done for years. I would say that some of it, you know, as much as I've banged on about how much I like story and I want them to explore it further within games, some of my very favourite games have no storyline at all or have a dreadful storyline or it's just, you know, um, you know, I really love the Crash Bandicoot games. I'm playing them again with my little one now. And he doesn't care about Dr. Neocortex and Coco Bandit. It's just nonsense. What he wants to do is run around a big jungle and jump over things and, and die on spikes. And I think it's all right if some of them are more sort of almost like sports, where the only story really is is how good you are at them and whether your team is winning and, you know... Um, no one complain, complains that the plot line of a football match is always the same. You know, someone wins or loses or draws. Uh, and I know my husband would argue that, oh, football, it's all very complex and you don't know. It. I mean, I couldn't give a monkeys. I think it's tedious. That's Again, that's a thing that's unique to games, that you, you can kind of have these really epic, involving, thought-provoking games with these mad storylines. And you can also have, you know, games that are just oh, you know, make the red block match up with the green block and then stars, yay! And I think that's sometimes all you want, isn't it? You can also hear Ellie on the fantastic Scummy Mummies podcast, a fortnightly podcast for less than perfect parents. Thanks to Ellie for allowing us to chat, 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 all things video games. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Tap your left earpiece. Not reading. Tap again. Epsilon, you are our last agent in the field. Delta fell some months ago, but we had trouble locating your signal. I'm sorry. I know you were close. Gorgon leaves clues in plain sight. 
The Lama Veriali's mission is to undo progress, to undercut all the social, technological and intellectual strides we've made and reset history. The stakes are high. However, if you remain defended against their propaganda and you know where to look, it means decoding is a simple thing. I can't tell your exact location, but your signal tells me you are near a lamb of every Ali stronghold. That means the clues are there to be found. Look around you. Are there any prominent posters? Signs? We're looking for words. Find the most prominent word you can see. I trust you, Epsilon. Trust me. Your instincts are good. The first letter of that word corresponds to its position in the alphabet. A is the first, B is the second, etc. It's simple, I know, but they are almost beyond subterfuge by now. They're playing with us. The number you should now have is the day of the month the petrification will take place. Signal it to me, now. Signal it to me now by tracing that number on your palm. Again. Epsilon, I don't need to tell you how serious this is. I have the number, and I'm so looking forward to meeting you in person. Changing frequency. Very, 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 very interesting conversation indeed. So the same old questions still endure. Is it best to tell a story quietly in the background of a game, or to offer a fully realised narrative defined by an authorial voice? One of the industry's foremost authorial voices is Rihanna Pratchett, whose fantastic contributions to the recent Tomb Raider games, as well as Mirror's Edge, the Overlord series, and many more, have cemented her reputation as a prized talent in an industry which often considers writing to be a secondary concern. I was lucky enough to get to speak to Rihanna about her process, her ambitions, and what it's like to tackle reinventing a true gaming icon. I'm Rihanna Pratchett and I'm a writer of video games, comics, film, TV, short stories, non-fiction, all kinds of things. So the two projects I'm going to talk about are Mirror's Edge and Overlord, uh, the first Overlord game. So with Mirror's Edge, uh, when I came on board, I think they'd had quite a lot of trouble finding a writer. Um, so they had designed the, the entire game with no narrative in mind, and that meant, like, they, they sort of chosen a look because they thought it looked, you know, quite cool, quite unusual for a, a sort of near future world. Um, because it was sort of like the anti Blade Runner. It was, it was kind of shiny and light where, where Blade Runner went sort of dark and grimy. So it was a very clean world, quite sterile, lots of reflective surfaces. Um, but no one had thought, why does it look like this? And there was, you know, character art, but no character. And likewise, that the, the movement of the game, that the parkour running uh, component of Mirror's Edge, because it is a game about running, <laughs> would, would had been established, but no one would have thought, why? Why why are, are people running a lot in this world? Why has parkouring over the edge of this, this shiny city a thing? So um, I came on board and I had to answer all those questions, which is 
and sort of wind a story around what was there. The the level designers and everyone else was was working on those designs. I mean that that's one of the things about writing for games is a bit like writing for a movie while the movie is being shot at the same time. So a lot of the why questions I had to answer. Why does Faith, the main character, move around the world in the way she does? How did this come to be? Um, who is she part of? Um, what does the rest of the world look like? Who, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? You know, that kind of thing. And that's a very sort of unique, bizarre scenario to find yourself in uh, when it comes to any other medium. But, but uh, it is a little bit too common in games, although it has got, it has got better. And so that was, you know, that was very challenging. I mean, you're, you're doing everything backwards, basically. You, you start with how the, ca- how the character sort of ends up and you have to sort of get them there. So, you know, I, I, I did the, the, the best I could with, with the time and, and budget available. But, you know, it's, it's not ideal. I call, call that kind of situation being a narrative paramedic when you're sort of brought in at the end of a project. Uh, or it, it wasn't, to be fair, it wasn't quite the end. There was probably sort of a, a year. Uh, a bit more left, but but the fact was that there wasn't a lot of space left for narrative, really. So everything had been de- designed, and I had to just go with that design and find an explanation for it. Yeah. So with um, the first Overlord game, I probably came in, in in about a year into development, and yeah, they they had a, a kind of overarching theme f- for the game. They had a sort of tone they wanted to have. They had kind of an artwork and a, a sort of core gameplay mechanics, but they'd left a lot of space for a writer to uh, weave a story sort of around that world and, and, and with the with the gameplay. And there was just a lot more, you know, as I say, space space to to actually be narratively uh, in. And yeah, that it was a much more positive experience because of that. And I was working in a much smaller team, so about sort of 30 plus people. Um, and I worked every day with each level designer re- remotely. They, they were this was uh, Triumph Studios based in the Netherlands. And I worked every day with the, the level designer for each level. And we went through their level and they talked about some of the, the things that they wanted to include from a, a gameplay point of view and what they might need for narrative to support that you know it could be a new mechanic introduced it could be a new minion it could be a boss fight and i would talk to them about the the narrative beats that i wanted to hit in that level and so that was very very useful because it meant i could craft a a script specifically for that level whereas the the sort of mirror's edge team was sort of so big that i never got to, to speak to the level designers at all so I think that was a much more collaborative experience, Overlord, even though I was writing everything, you know, every single word from you know the cinematics right down to the weapon text, because I was sort of talking very regularly with the, with the designers, it meant that what I was doing was sort of fitting well with what they were doing. So it was all sort of dove, dovetailing nicely, and it meant that they weren't trying to, you know, wrangle a script into into that they hadn't had any involvement in into their level and I wasn't trying to, to wind a script around you know a fully designed level and in the in the second game in Overlord 2 I was involved even a little bit earlier on than that not right at the start of the project by and large freelance writers like myself don't get involved right at the start generally freelance sort of gun for hire writers like myself will get drafted in um, a bit later on in the process I think the industry has sort of start has, has been 
embracing the idea of actually using professional writers for their professional products uh, for, for a little while now. But when I first got into the industry, you know, the, the question bouncing around was, you know, do, do games need professional writers? It's like, well, they've got professional everything else. You know, games are not usually writer driven, really, unless they are, you know, the, the, the traditional story heavy genres such as role playing games or adventure games. Now, you know, story is becoming much more important in, say, first person shooters or action adventure games than it certainly used to be. But generally, you know, games are, get, are gameplay led. That, you know, that, that, that's kind of why they're games. And so, understanding what game developer, uh, what game designers are going to be fighting for, level designers, um, play testers, things like that, will will kind of help you just understand how the whole thing is put together and, and what battles to kind of fight. So, understanding what what kind of everyone else is doing, um, you've got to establish good good lines of communication because this is an industry that, that hasn't been used to to kind of working with writers it's definitely a two-way street i think that game writers need to to have some um idea of design and how design works um they ideally need to be game gamers themselves i mean i would i would always say you you need to be a gamer to write for games you need to watch movies and read screenplays to write movies it's it's the same for games you've got to kind of understand it from an audience's perspective i i believe personally Psychonauts would probably be one of the best examples of that that, that I've played. And it's about a, a young boy with psychic powers that runs um, runs away from the circus to join a summer camp for psychic children. And there's all sorts of, of kind of mysteries um, and nefarious deeds going on there. And it's all about him working out what's happening. It's all about the mental state of characters and going into to characters' mindscapes. And so their mindscapes literally become the levels, the level design. Um, and so you are playing through them. So the entire environment is indicative of the character. Um, so, yes, yeah, Psychonauts is probably where I've seen it working best. Level design as storytelling, I don't think there's, there's anything that beats it. I think Bioshock in a different way sort of comes close um but but it, it is very different but you know because bioshock was kind of conceived and, and sort of pulled together by a writer designer ken levine he could kind of oversee everything and pull everything together the writers with hard power in this industry are sort of few and far between and by hard power i mean their creative directors or game directors on their projects so we're talking about people like ken like Amy Hennig, like Neil Druckmann, um, and yeah, you know, and it's it's no surprise that that you know the games they've been associated with, The Last of Us, Uncharted, the Bioshock games have been sort of well regarded for their storytelling, and that's because they've had a you know a, a narrative person kind of at the helm. Sort of as you said, you, you've played games from when you were very young. Uh, so to begin with, I'd like to talk about how you felt to be able to tackle and sort of develop or reinvent uh, as seminal a character as Lara Croft. Um, well, I, it, obviously, it was, it was such a great challenge, and um, she was the fourth, uh, sorry, the third female protagonist that um, I, I was I worked on. So I'd worked on, already worked on Rico in Heavenly Sword and Faith in Mirror's Edge. So it, it sort of felt like this was the right kind of challenge for me that I was the, the you know the right the right person at the right time. You know, fated, I guess, if uh, if I really believed in that kind of thing. I mean, I played the the first Tomb Raider. And I played it maybe a bit of the second, and I sort of fell out of love with the franchise, particularly because of the way it was marketed. Um, not so much the games themselves, but I sort of disliked 
Um, not so much the sexualization of Laura, although that didn't particularly appeal, but the way that she was so made for the boys, like, and it, it sort of, it showed um, a great lack of understanding for the, poten- the kind of potential marketplace. Um, and it, it sort of irritated me that the marketing was so gendered towards men in, in a way that it's it's not now, certainly, well, certainly not for Tomb Raider. Um, and that, that kind of, as a, as a younger gamer, that, that really sort of put me off and I, I fell out of love with the franchise. So, um, you know, I was really happy to see that... Um, you know, Crystal Dynamics were, were you know, taking a new, uh, new look at Lara when she was sort of younger and, and before she was a Tomb Raider. And I think that that's, that's really sort of fertile ground for a writer to sort of explore a character's origins. I didn't feel particularly intimidated by it at the time because, you know, no one really knows for quite a long time who's doing, you know, what in the, the public eye. So by the time I was announced as a writer, I'd pretty much done all the work anyway. I'd say there was a lot more pressure with the second game because then there was a, the weight of expectation based on, on how well the first game had done. And so that was that was even heavier, I think. I think the first game we were not exactly left to our own devices, but there, there was certainly less Eye of Sauron than uh, there was with the second game. Um, I think there was a lot more... A lot more people interested in, in kind of being involved in the story in some way. Um, despite the fact that, you know, w- with our team of two people, uh, we, we'd done, you know, pretty well with, with the first game. With, with the second, suddenly, yeah, there are lots more people we, we kind of had to appease, uh, along the process. It, it kind of in a similar way to, to writing a studio picture. Uh, so it was just a, continual headwind of feedback all the time we were getting sort of feedback from Square Enix we were getting feedback from Microsoft we were getting feedback from our internal testers from external testers from uh, external consultants and from our own team just perpetual feedback the whole time and it it, that was largely to, to kind of make sure that we didn't have any issues later down the line which we, we kind of had a bit of with the first game i think you, you kind of always do particularly around alpha um where you know all the pieces are in the game and you, you're, you're you're just gonna trying to make sure that they work right and we had to sort of change um a few things in the story uh where where things weren't were, weren't working as well as we'd hoped or we needed to change the ending because yeah, that as certain sort of gameplay decisions had been made that sort of tonally changed how the ending felt. So we, you know, we had to uh, adjust to that as well. And I think it was a reaction to those issues that sort of suddenly, you know, it seemed that there were a lot more people being involved in story, not in writing it, just, just the, the kind of, as I say, the eye of Sauron. That was, that was quite, quite a challenge to uh, uh, to work under as a, as a creative because you know it, even in script development you're probably not used to getting your your raw work out there in a sort of first draft stage to kind of so many people that are picking it apart as if it is a final draft i think i would have liked to have um given her more of a sense of humor um i you know the, i i'd written a lot of you know humorous games in the form of, of the overlord games 
And it was something that people kind of associated with Lara Evolve. Uh, and I think that was one of the reasons why Crystal didn't want to do that, because it was very associated with old Lara. And, and their, their um, reasoning was that you know, the, the quippy one-liners that you know, characterised old Lara and, and characterised a lot of, of video game protagonists in general kind of suggest confidence in a way that she doesn't really have at the um, start of of the of Tomb Raider, the 2013 Tomb Raider. She doesn't really have that confidence, so they didn't feel the kind of witty one-liners were, were quite as um, needed as they were in the past, and so they, they wanted to kind of keep a more gritty, darker tone. She's sort of dryly dryly witty at, at certain points and um more more so in the comics actually i could i could get a little bit more humor and just surrealness in into the comics more because uh they didn't get the eye of sarah on yeah i could just about get away with roy roy humor a tiny bit and a tiny bit with with alex as well but um yeah i had i had so many kind of Jokes spilled out of both the two Raider games. Maybe they just didn't find me funny. I do think sometimes the industry can get quite obsessed with dark and gritty, and that tends to be valued over humour. I think, and 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 even sort of humour is not necessarily given a place in the dark and gritty world because you can, you know, you have you know humour inherent in, in difficult kind of situations but often I found with, with dark, kind of dark and gritty games I expect to write very seriously but but you know serious is not the opposite of funny unfunny is the opposite of funny so you can combine serious themes with with humour and have you know characters that deal with stuff with humour but but kind of often that isn't necessarily given much much of a place uh, you know, dark and serious situations do not always have to be dealt by every single character in a dark and serious way. Thanks to Rihanna for joining us and for sharing some of her wisdom from her many years ago. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Tap your left earpiece. Not reading. Tap again. Epsilon, they're on to you. We don't have much time. The Gorgon's agents are closing in on your location as we speak. We need to find the trigger word. On the day of petrification, the trigger word will be emitted across all frequencies, infecting them with a self-replicating, constantly mutating virus. This will spread, eventually eradicating all technological systems, effectively shutting down the world's infrastructure for good. Epsilon, I need you to find the trigger word. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to pause this transmission and listen to your surroundings. You are listening for sounds, and the sounds you hear should allow your mind to free associate to the trigger word. The Lamb of Evriali's trigger word is generated to appeal to your most subliminal, instinctive self. Let your mind go blank. What do you hear? Birds? Traffic? It could be anything. Take note of its quality and trust your instincts, but we need to know what is making the noise you can hear most clearly. Pause the transmission and listen. Now we can begin the free association. Keep your mind blank. What word do you associate with the thing that was making the noise? Come up with a new word now. Good. We'll free associate again. Come up with a third word. Repeat this process until you find the word that feels right to you. That is our trigger word. 
Remember, Epsilon, you have good instinct. Trust yourself. Trust me. Pause the transmission until you have found the trigger word. Good. Say the word. Even under your breath. Say it aloud. Say it. Petrification has been triggered by the last known agent of the old order. <laughs> I am the Gorgon. You've been hidden well, but I finally found you. Omega begged me to spare you before I killed her, but I wanted so much. For yours to be the voice that ushered in the age of the Lamb of Every Ali. Things will change now. Goodbye, Epsilon. You'll hear that trigger word again as it mutates and travels. I'm sure we'll meet in person soon. the interactive tools at our disposal become more and more powerful, player and game world get closer and closer together. Virtual reality, once a science fiction dream, is now available in your home, complete with amusing headset and gloves. Lately, most major film or game releases are producing companion VR experiences, and many consumer brands are using VR to appeal to technologically savvy consumers. And fully VR-based projects are beginning to come into their own, independent of other licenses. Daryl Atkins is the creative director of Rewind, an agency specialising in video production, mixed reality and VR experiences. Jenny Redmond sat down with him to discuss how emerging technology can impact what stories we tell and how we tell them. Hi, I'm uh, Daryl Atkins. I'm executive creative director um, at a studio called Rewind, who deals with uh, applications of creative technology uh, for storytelling with films and brands. Um, and we kind of work on, on new ways to apply technology to tell those stories. So what do you define as technology that you're applying? What types of things are being used at the moment? Um, it's, it's really broad and it's also an area that's moving really fast. Um, there's a lot of innovation in, in technology because we've seen it being a new medium for, for telling these stories. Um, one of the things that, that we think about uh, traditionally with storytelling uh, is, is some sort of authorship or narration or direction where you're projecting your story onto you know characters which you see from afar traditionally in a frame in a screen you know on stage uh, and we're actually asking the user specifically with a virtuality and augmented reality to become the protagonist to become you know the main character in those stories so we call it story living instead of storytelling um, and that's very much a kind of new way of thinking about telling stories because you don't have that projection or that abstraction of where you don't exist within your own body we're asking the viewer to become that person and that raises a lot of really interesting questions you know about being a protagonist uh, and also some really difficult things to solve in terms of looking at your own body and how do you identify with that character how do you build empathy there's questions on how you direct people's attention uh, and you lose a lot in terms of the way a director would normally funnel the narrative, show you close-ups, show you establishing shots. They're there for a reason. 
and that cinema, cinematic language has been around for such a long time that we know how to do things in that space. Uh, and we've become very good at telling stories in that in that way. Um, but with these new mediums where we're asking uh, the audience to step inside that world, to step through the window, we have to think about a whole new language, a whole new way of, of telling stories. Um, and actually, in fact, theatre, um, immersive theatre, for example, has a, has a really good head start on, on this way of thinking about uh, everything around you and theatre in the round, for example, is a good example of, of thinking how the audience can have this immediate dialogue with, with a story, you know, there's no longer something where you're detached from your body, you're actually in that space. Um, so for us, the technology uh, is just a way of bringing these people inside, bringing people closer to the story. Um, but for us, it needs to be transparent, you know, um, as technology is evolving, it's getting lighter and easier and cheaper uh, for consumers to use. Um, but really, uh, it's quite an abstract thing, you know, to use a controller, to use a phone. It's not very human. You know, you're, you're adding levels of abstraction. You have to think about buttons. You have to think about hardware, which isn't natural, you know. Um, so we're, we're thinking about how that can be transparent. And a lot of that is about thinking about diegetic uses of technology and how do they work uh, inside that story without the user feeling like it's technology for technology's sake. Uh, one of the difficult things sort of with, with virtual reality um, in its current form is that it's, it's quite primitive uh, in the sense that when I talked about it being transparent, I think the user doesn't want to be aware of the technology that's coming in the way of the story. Um, so there's limitations um, purely in the, in the technology sense of being able to see pixels and, and things like that um, aren't really desirable when you're trying to tell each other that story. Um, but some of the other, other questions which we found uh, arise over how do you identify with that character? Because often you become a first-person character in that scene. You have agency within that world and you have to make sure you can deliver that agency uh, clearly throughout the experience. So if you can inside and experience and pick up one of the cups you need to you would expect to be able to pick up all of the cups in that space um, and once you kind of break that pattern uh, of immersion it becomes something quite abstract and frustrating for the user so i think you have to think about what expected outcomes there are um, there's another issue uh, which which is called proprioception which is the awareness of your own limbs um, so when you put on a virtuality headset, you have an awareness of the reach that you would have with your physical body. You'd have an awareness of your your height from the ground uh, and, a, and a real acuteness to stereo disparities, the distance between your eyes, something you never think about. But your concept of, of the world and the size of the world is relative to your upbringing. Your whole life has been based on your experience of how things are perceived in your own head. But when we're transferring someone into a virtual world and we give them two virtual eyes, if they're not the right distance apart, you perceive the world as an entirely different scale. So if your eyes are, are, are quite close together in the virtual world, if they're too far apart, everything will feel a lot smaller. And proprioceptively, you have this disconnect with what you perceive to be real and what we're projecting as something that is real. Um, and those challenges are quite difficult. And you have to do things like measure people's IPD, which we do in, in mixed reality technology, such as uh, the HoloLens, for example, um, to try and give that person, you know, a sense of, of transparency between their physical self and their virtual avatar. 
um, because that disconnect can be a, a real problem and, and quite alarming for people. So one of the big challenges uh, in virtuality experiences are this idea of your optical body. So if you look down at your body now, you know where your hands are, you know the colour of your skin, your gender. Um, if we ask someone to be in a virtual experience, we have to kind of either make assumptions on one hand with a body, or if it's a film, maybe you become the protagonist. Um, but a lot of the time, I think we've ended up resolving into having this invisible body because it raises very difficult questions over who you should be and what you should be. Um, and there's other, at this stage as well, a lot of technical challenges. Like we can't represent every point on the body properly. So we have to infer the angles of your elbows and your knees. And, you know, there, there is a lot of, there's a lot of um, technological holes at this stage. Uh, and I think the best approach that, that we've found is to try and not address a lot of those issues. Um, you actually have a, a better resonance with an experience if you don't give a user those things to, to become alarmed about. Almost the incorrects. Don't give them the incorrects. Just leave it absent and let them make it, their own. Yeah, exactly. So the idea of not having a body, I think, is far more agreeable with most people than it is to try and project a body which is wrong. Um, similar thing with the idea of having arms, and I'm sure a lot of these things will become uh, will be solved as as people do more and more experiments in this space. Um, but it seems people are kind of happy to have a representation of hands which aren't necessarily their own, so transparent or stylized. And that issue has has come up before in different forms in in film and TV of the concept of the uncanny valley. You know, as you approach realism, CGI faces, for example, your body, you you know, uh, you end up rejecting, you're rejecting the, the realism of that character because we're very, very particular about what is correct. We've had our whole life to understand uh, our reality. And if something's slightly off, we actually have a, a, a very adverse uh, relationship to that thing. Uh, and VFX has struggled with that long time with digital double humans. Uh, and certainly if you go back to, you know, the, le the late 2000s, we're still struggling with that. And we're still even struggling with that now. Uh, and that issue comes across. Uh, and and I, I would argue that that does damage story because really what you're doing is focusing on the te technological limitations of the technology and not really focusing on what we're trying to tell, you know, what, what stories we're trying to tell. You're thinking about uh, things which which aren't really coherent with the story. Um, so techn technology is one of the inherent barriers um, to, to that. Um, but then... It is quite forgiving in other ways. So moving on to things like uh, mixed realities, which is uh, where you would wear a headset, which is transparent to the world, almost wearing like sunglasses. You can see the world around you, but we can augment your own reality with 3D objects, uh, characters which exist within your own space, um, which has a, a really a different approach. You know, it doesn't need to be as high fidelity to be believable because it exists within a space you're familiar with and you can have a relationship with reality uh, in a much more transparent way than putting on a virtual reality headset where we're transporting you to another world we're bringing the story into your own home we did a, um, a project recently and for me personally i think this is a really exciting application where we we play on the idea of blurring the lines between technology and storytelling um, 
we did a, uh, a project with uh, a theatre company called Punch Drunk, who are really well known for The Drowned Man. Um, and it was a perfect match, really, because they understand about telling stories where you're, you're asking uh, you're asking your viewer to step into that world and believe the constraints of that world um, and explore it in, an, in a very interactive way. And they did it in a physical sense, in a physical location with physical actors. Um, and we wanted to think about how we could transfer that into a virtual space with virtual actors and how that experience resonates with people in an entirely new way. So we tried to create something which is both tactile and physical, um, but with the capabilities of transcending uh, your body with this virtual technology. So we did um, uh, a closed experience in Cannes where um, one of the um, operators who is working for a technology company uh, takes you into this this room and then starts this dialogue. Um, and this is all in the physical realm and then places uh, a headset on you. And then we blur the lines between the virtual and physical by recreating that set in the, in the virtual space as a one-to-one replica. And the story continues to evolve. So it feels like there's this kind of seamless transition from the physical into the virtual. And that person then multiplies and they morph and they change and multiple actors come into that space and they touch you and they turn you. And we did a physical um, surround sound mix as well. So you didn't have headphones and the room grew and it blew apart. Uh, and it really asked some really interesting questions about the idea of where you are in that space so that when you left the experience, you the experience carried on through the rest of the evening, which kind of looped back inside that experience to questions that are asked um, during that time. And it becomes almost an art piece, but questioning the technology itself uh, and also alluding to that convergence of that time where you may not be aware if you are dreaming, if you're in the headset, if you're in the real life. Um, and that was a fantastic thing to work with those guys because they knew how to write those those kinds of stories and those scripts. And they were really thinking about the experience. You know, what do you come away from feeling? Um, and that's how they're thinking about it. What's the outcome of that experience? Uh, and what are those questions that are raised during that experience? And how do they stay with you afterwards? Um, and for me, that's the kind of perfect project to do because it starts asking those questions and it becomes something which is quite profound it's not a throwaway piece of you know entertainment it's something where someone was actually moved uh, and it's a very different experience for every person because it's very individual uh, and those kind of experiences um, I think are where the technology is really exciting at the moment You might have noticed a few surprise interruptions to our programme this month. We hate to spoil the illusion, but we should probably tell you that these short episodes came courtesy of 101 Theatre, an immersive theatre company which our own co-producer Eleanor Rushton was involved in setting up. The play was The Lamb and was performed by Sharon Cherry Ballard. And now we present a conversation between two of the co-founders of 101 Theatre, Asia Osborne and Eleanor Rushton. I'm Asia Osborne and I'm Artistic Director of 101 Theatre Company. And I'm Eleanor Rushton, I'm the executive producer of 101, and Asia and I were two of the founding members of the company. We got the idea that interacting and creating an experience where people were pushed to experience more emotion or more drama and were encouraged to react freely to it was quite an exciting form of theatre. 
I remember quite well when we first sort of, we'd come up with the idea to have this company and then we decided to try and work out how we would interact and how we would make um, plays be able to be steered by the audience. And we had these kind of weird and wonderful long workshops of just sort of trying to chuck in bits of text and just sort of work out how we could try and steer things. Um, And then... I don't know if you agree with this or not. And then I think we hit upon an approach, which we still use now, which is coming up with a kind of, with a a tight but simple scaffolding upon which we hang the shows, kind of, you know, a world that we've chosen. And then working out sort of visceral or subliminal kind of signs or symbols and that kind of thing that will help to take the audience out of their everyday lives put them in the world we've created and give them choices to make i think that's true 101 spelled numerically 101 are our most interactive shows they all last about 40 minutes 45 minutes and they're all based on classic stories so the idea is that the audience members in the room know the stories they don't know that they're in that particular story, but once they realize which story they're in, they can see what choices have led them to uh, create that ending. So for example, if it's Hamlet, you enter into a courtroom scene and there is a king and you are encouraged to pay obeisance to the king. And then the king is swiftly dispatched by an actor and a new king rises and the audience member who seems least happy with that change becomes Hamlet. And there are lots of different choices Hamlet can make, but it only become we only start using the text of Hamlet very close to the end once most of Hamlet's choices have been made. Yeah. So the idea is that you're you're allowed to have a very free reign within a world that we create, and you can interact with that world within the confines of that world as much as you like. And we're quite non-confrontational, so we're not going to put anyone on the spot and say kill someone or say something funny or sing us a song. Yeah. But if you would like to do any of those things. More than welcome. We're pretty keen. Yeah, we're pretty enthused. Well, I think that hanging it on a classic story has enabled us to do some really exciting stuff. But also, mm-hmm. I do like that we keep the reveal until the end. Because I think if I knew what story I was in, I would either feel, well, I think some people would feel the need to sort of do what the story did. Yes. And kind of maybe even show that they know what the story is. But also, I think people might want to mess it up. Yes, and I think the way we've got it is um, it seems to be that actually people respond in the way they feel like responding. When people come, they tend to do one of two things. They'll either react as themselves. So they'll be, they'll be playing Hamlet, but it'll be them as Hamlet. So they'll be making all the choices that they would make. Or they'll start acting and they'll become what they think we want. And they'll make choices based on what they think will uh be the most dramatic um, mm. option. And I think either of those options is really valid and really interesting from an actor director's point of view. And it's just really interesting to see how people react honestly. And also for the actors, I think, because the actors are forced to react in their characters. I think it's a really great test of the wonderful actors that we have. You have to give the limelight to the audience. And you have to support what the audience want to do. Yeah, it's kind of that classic yes and that, yeah. that is kind of the mainstay of comic improvisation. Yes. But I think we bring it to a dramatic yes, yes. context. 
I think a truly interactive show is one where, as an audience member, you have a true impact on the action. So it is not just you wandering around in a gorgeous forest looking at other gorgeous stuff happening, but actually you walking around in a gorgeous forest plucking an apple and that meaning that a character doesn't get an apple and that meaning that she has to go sell her body to get another apple or whatever you like. Um, but the choices you make actually impact the action, impact the storytelling. I think that's interactive theatre. Do you remember when we um, first started doing it, we even, we talked about and actually had experimented with having audience plants? Oh, yeah. And then I think it took about four shows for us to realise that we did not need them. Yeah. So we were using plants when there was, I think, particularly when there was a love story or we needed someone to do like a really sort of assertive action. Yes. And we just realised that the audiences are assertive and very frequently willing to get in on a love story and that kind of yeah. stuff. I think it's really wonderful that we underestimate the audience so much and their capabilities. And actually audiences are so generous with what they're willing to do and, and how far they're willing to push themselves. It is really inspiring often. As an actor in 101, some of, some of the most sort of alert and tuned in moments I've had on stage have been in in 101 shows where usually when the when an audience member who is engaging really interestingly has just done something that we haven't accounted for yeah or sort of in massive inverted commas like messed up the show and it yeah. just forces everyone to like a pack of cards to just reshuffle yeah, it's yeah. amazing and you just sort of see like this group think with the audience as well but with the actors kind of going what would happen now? Mm. And I love that it gets worked out. Like what would happen happens. Recently, the bit that went wrong, which was really great, was in our Othello version. That was the one of the very specific ones I was thinking. I thought of, that actually. was really excellent because we had a we have an audience member playing Othello and we have an actor playing Iago and Desdemona. And those are kind of main players. We've got an audience Cassio, but Cassio tends to just Cassie on that night was having a lovely time and did not get involved in the action. But when it came time for Othello to decide whether or not to kill Desmona, because he's given a very explicit choice, one of the audience members who up to that point had been random barracks participant suddenly started asking Othello all these questions about how he felt emotionally and what he was basing his decision on and what the repercussions might be. And they had a really interesting discussion. And he then proceeded to try and do it anyway. And then... And we had another feisty audience member going and standing in yeah. front yes. of the murder victim. It was yeah, inc- it was incredible, and so there was just a, such a sense of no one knowing what was going to happen. Mm. Should we talk a little bit about the process of actually making that scaffolding of a show? So we choose a story. Yes, we choose a story. We work out the main choices within that story. So I think generally we work out where the endings might go because that's the, usually for a show we have at least four different endings. Which can then be riffed on. Which can then be riffed on. And then we work backwards from that. So there are smaller choices that lead us towards one of those four endings. I'm trying to think of an example, but I... So some of the choices are to do with like showing your character or showing the audience's characteristics. Like, so whether they're kind or not yes whether they're willing to obey because they're told to obey or whether they're more rebellious and that kind of thing yes so for example um the beauty and the beast bluebeard one Mm. where the test at the 
heart comes down to whether someone is willing to obey just because they're told to or not. Mm. And also if they are willing to show, to be kind to someone who seems vulnerable, even though they're also potentially dangerous Mm. or violent and things like that. And we also, as you said with the Hamlet one, define the world that the story is happening in. Yes. So we have a setup. We have a sort of first group of characters or a character that the audience will meet and they will be presented their worldview usually. Yes. And then another potentially clashing um, action or event or person comes in and suddenly the choices begin to kind of sprout and bloom. Yes, that's true. Yeah, the first 10 minutes are broadly speaking, world building. So we'll set the tone and the most important players and then, yeah, we'll start to mess mess with it. And also we use the first 15, 20 minutes-ish to figure out which audience members are most interested in interacting. Should we have a brief conversation about this audio interactive thing which we just made? Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. I hope people, (laughs) I hope people said some words. That one was... It's interesting because we're trying to think of ways that the listener could interact with the story. Obviously, we can't get the recording to interact back with you in a in a huge way. Yeah, it was interesting figuring out ways to create something interactive, as in encouraging a listener to interact, while obviously it being remote, us not being yeah. there, us not being able to... Make sure they're mouthing something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think it's very easy to get worried about what if they don't do this? What if they don't do that? But there comes a point that people will join in and they do join in and they do immerse themselves. And it's a balance between worrying about people feeling included, feeling like they can contribute. But if Mm. someone's not interested in interacting, but is choosing to come to an interactive show or listening to an interactive audio drama, that's fine too. Yeah. But they won't get get interacted with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've loved making this episode because it's been so interesting hearing the voices of people who are interested in stretching and playing with what it means to interact with an audience and what it means to tell a story immersively or interactively um, across these genres that I don't, I would, I wouldn't know how to, how to approach it. Um, And it's also been fascinating from the point of view of hearing these, um, well, making one and hearing another um, attempts to tell an audio interactive story, which is difficult and exciting and cool. I'm quite excited about the possibilities. The the, the people we've spoken to and the types of content we've had on this episode have felt so far ranging. We've, We've been involved in a lot of different worlds and a lot of different genres. And really what that's given me hope for is what is to come with interaction from a you know a technological point of view from advances that are being made there but also into final reaching medium so thinking more about um what could happen with truly interactive books what could happen when vr takes over our favorite universes that we already know so well and then we actually get to fully experience them in the gryffindor common room <laughs> for example just pick a random example just to pick a random example yeah you know, any of that kind of stuff and, and fully experience the kind of feeling you get when you read a book in a traditional manner because you do feel immersed, despite the fact that it's not immersive or interactive in the, in, in the senses that we've been talking about. But it could be. I guess I'm sort of something of a, of a grump. I think that 
when we when we begin to make things virtual reality, we make, we begin to place ourselves into the action. I feel like you're almost putting a bit of a you are walking such a narrow tightrope. Like, well, I mean, all tightropes are narrow. That was completely redundant, <laughs> but it's still it's a very narrow tightrope, and it's where you you can't cast too strong an eye on the fact that you are in the story because that breaks the story. You also can't convince someone that they are a character within the world for too long because they are not, and they have their own feelings and instincts. Who knows? Maybe we'll have fully VR worlds at some point. Like in, we'll be in the Matrix, and we'll lose that distinction. But it occurs to me that uh, you often find a kind of fatigue. I think from being involved in a story like that. It doesn't mean that these things won't continue to grow and develop, but I feel like people fundamentally kind of want to escape, and that might make it sound like VR is the best way to do that, but I think that, if anything, having a role and an obligation in a world like that and being so actively involved in it might possibly become fatiguing. But then I'm also probably wrong, and in 20 years I'll listen back to this uh, and I'll be absolutely sickened at the sound of my voice and opinions. Here's hoping. Yeah. I think the process of developing new ways of telling stories has always been something that has to sort of feel perhaps clunky when it enters into the um, pre-existing way of doing things. And I think I think you're right that clearly immersion has limitations, big ones. But I think it's kind of what Jenny was saying. This this I think that the fact that the borders of it aren't known yet, just as the borders of our own imaginations and and sort of human capacity in general aren't known i think it's really exciting that there is now this sort of tangible avenue down which storytelling seems to be going and we can't see the end but we can see that it's going to be important no i don't know as we all know if something seems difficult you just have to stop doing it that's good i'm going to tattoo that on my wrist right now thank you (laughs) I might remain a grumpy old Gus, but it can't be denied that immersion and interaction are turning the heads of a lot of new audiences, and many lifelong art lovers looking for a new angle, too. And as widely available technology catches up with the creative ambitions of writers, directors and other innovators, the lines between media begin to blur, and possibly the line between reality and simulation, that is, if we haven't lost track of it already. The role and responsibility of the storyteller is still being figured out in this exciting new playground, but one thing's for sure – The narrative opportunities presented by complex audience interaction and virtual reality will be something to see, and we'll be seeing the effects very soon indeed. Thanks for joining us this month. If you'd like to interact with us in some way, the best things you can do are subscribe to our show, recommend us to a friend, and write us a nice review on iTunes. If you'd like any more information on any of the interviews you've heard, you can find full episode notes on our website at storyetcetrapod.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at storyetcetrapod or email us at storyetcetrapod at gmail.com. And do get in touch, especially if you have a short story or play you'd like us to consider for the programme, or if you're an actor who'd like to perform with us. That email address again, storyetcetrapod at gmail.com. We want to hear your stories too. We'd like to mention a couple of dates for your diary. If you live in or near London and you'd like to support our show, save the evening of Thursday the 24th of August, as that's the date of our next live fundraiser. More information available at storyetcetrapod.com forward slash live. Expect another packed lineup of storytelling and live performers, and almost certainly another brain-teasing quiz. Join us, support the arts, and enjoy a fine evening in excellent company. And also in August, it's the next edition of Crowley & Co.'s smash hit variety show, The Night, at Brasserie's Adele. Come down to Piccadilly Circus on Monday the 14th of August at 9.15pm to see the spirit of variety in the heart of London. We'll have cabaret, comedy and music, plus a brand new adventure for your hosts, The Night Company. 
More information and tickets available at bit.ly forward slash the dash night. See you there. That's all for this month. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. Music. Story Etc. Episode 5, Interaction, was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill marson who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Clancy Flynn, Matt Wateska, Ellie Gibson, Rihanna Pratchett, Daryl Atkins and Asia Osborne. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening.